Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. All right. There's a question to kick things off. What would you do if you knew you could not fail? All right, it's a quote attributed to the late Eleanor Roosevelt, and it's kind of made its way around the internet and the blogosphere again uh, recently to try and get people to dream big, uh, to stir their imaginations about a life without fears and huge rewards and and accomplishments and kind of shows that a a big barrier to entry for a lot of things that we do is the, the, the fear of the risks associated with maybe some of the dreams that we have. I I shook my head. I probably shouldn't have done it, but I decided to Google that question and just see what the world thought. Uh, And that's probably never a good idea. And when I Googled, what would you do if you could not fail? Immediately, I was inundated with uh, a lot of images. One of the first uh, was of someone tightrope walking across a canyon or in between buildings. That's their choice. Uh, and the second is a woman free solo climbing a, a almost beyond vertical wall uh, with no rope, like hanging from one arm with sure death if she were to fall, but she's not because she can't uh, fail. And, and these pictures, they, they, they made me laugh because they're overly cliche attempts at, at motivation uh, to, to try and uh, maybe put a, a corny forced way to, to get you to think about what you could do if fear wasn't a barrier for you. So... I, it's, it's interesting what people come up with. Can you imagine and all of a sudden I figure out, hey, the next thing that you do, you will not fail. What will you do? Garrett, Blake, get a rope. All right, we're going to go to the Hearn Center and we're going to tie that thing across to the helipad and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tightrope over stadium and it's going to be uh, amazing, right? That, that's probably not going to be the first thing that I set out to do if I know that I'm not going to uh, fail. Then kind of my, uh, as my wife calls it, twisted sense of humor begins to go even further and imagine like an overly gullible soul who hears this line of what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail. And so as they sing the artist to not be named song, I believe I can fly, they like jump off of playground equipment just to land on their, on their face. That, that, that's the way my mind works. It, it's broken sometimes. But the question, what would you do if you could not fail? It, it's used a ton for motivational speakers uh, it's used for the, the masses of influencers to keep you listening. It's used by the positive thought crowd to kind of hype up self-actualization and get you to swing for the fences only after you pay $19.99 for a PDF of three ways not to fail in your attempts of success, right? I make a joke out of the question because it's just not real, right? It's not grounded in our reality. We have no guarantee that things will go well for us, and we have no guarantee that the things that are really important to us that we try really hard at are going to succeed. There's one guarantee that we do have, and Solomon talks about it in the text here. So people don't tightrope walk more things because they like to breathe. Uh, People don't take a second mortgage out on their house to start some obscure business for a a product that nobody but them cares about because they want to eat and have a home. The question is just a little bit uh, silly, right? Now, I believe that that question isn't very helpful to our world, but I do think that we can reframe that question in order to dance with it a little bit surrounding the text that Solomon gives us today. So if we switch the question of what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail, if we reframed it into what would you do or how would you, your life change if you knew no matter what happened, you wouldn't be considered a failure and you'd have approval now that's a question to dance with, 
That's a question to kind of navigate around. What would it feel like if the, the senses of failure that maybe kind of come at you in waves were, were, were gone? Senses of shame or inadequacy, or, or maybe you deal with self-loathing every once in a while that it just kind of comes in. What if it just disappeared? Uh, because no matter what happened in your life, you knew that the approval that you need is just there. Something inside of you is calmed. You don't have to grind so hard to make people respect you. You don't have to deal with imposter syndrome anymore. You don't have to feel like a hot mess. What would it change if you didn't have to fight so hard to feel worthy or smart or valuable to other people? Because inside, this this thing just kind of flipped in you, and you have this deep and abiding sense that I'm approved of right now. Come hell or high water, I have what I need. But this question doesn't have to exist in fairy tales. This can be one, again, that we dance with, and it's worthy of our processing. And I, I think it's one that, that Solomon would have us process in light of the text before us today. I, I won't do an in-depth recapping, but we do always want to keep in front of us the, the point of the book. Solomon is dealing with humanity's tries to make life joyful, fulfilling, and, and meaningful uh, by chasing things under the sun. We chase pleasure and wisdom and possessions and power and all of this other stuff to just kind of make us feel okay inside. But Solomon is contending no matter where you look underneath the, the, the sun, no matter how hard you chase things underneath the, the sun, you cannot find what you need internally by chasing things under the sun. All the things that you try and grasp a hold of to, to get that deeper sense of, of peace will slip out of your fingers like vanity and they'll leave you empty. They'll, they'll be like smoke. In recent chapters, though, Solomon has focused a lot on the topic of wisdom. How we tend to think we know more than we do fairly often. And this topic of wisdom comes up and it shows itself, it peaks its head in our lack of submission to earthly authorities. And then it shows its head in our frustration with God for doing things or letting things happen that we don't see as good. See, the text today is going to hook back to that, that theme over the last couple weeks, points of frustration when you just don't understand why God would do some of the things that he does. It's going to deal with the difficulty in processing how evil and wicked people seem to to prosper and be praised and and flourish and and have this life that just seems kind of easy. And, And while righteous men and women get crushed and mistreated and hurt all the time. Inside, we tend to think that these things are unfair and that unfairness, we then turn and extrapolate that into a God who's unjust. Why would you do this? Why would you let that happen? And that's the, the kind of surface feeling that, that we have, that God is rewarding wickedness and maybe even that God loves the wicked people more than the righteous and his sons and daughters. And we're going, why are you doing this? And, and we navigate that because we tend to tie together flourishing in someone's life with love from God. Uh, while we also end up saying that, that bad circumstances or painful things are, are hate our punishment, Solomon will kind of dismantle this short-sighted view and ask us, hey, will you kind of get on your tippy toes with me and and look over the horizon of eternity and look at the full plan of God instead of the immediate that is right before you. See that God is trustworthy and he is good. So chapter nine opens with this sage-like approach to the tension of trusting God when things seem unfair in our mind. And he says this, After examining it at all, 
They're looking around, taking it all in. The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. So he's talking about, hey, when, when you have that thing in you, when you see righteous and good people getting crushed, and you're like, why is that happening? He goes, hey, that too is in the hands of God. He's not trying to get around the tension. He doesn't say, well, you know, that one thing that happened to that righteous and good person, you, you know, it, it was kind of beyond God's control, and they don't put on the deist hat, and like God was just kind of busy, and he had to step away and do something else. He doesn't do any of that. He leans right in it. The, the righteous people who have trouble seeing why they suffer, even their lives, and their suffering is in the hands of God. He's still even in control over their situation, even if you don't like their situation and even if you don't understand why good people have hard things happen to them. Solomon wants us to know that we cannot use our or other people's situations to try and say that God loves or hates them. That is an incomplete and not thorough examining of all things. So what's the logic here? God is sovereign. Not one inch of the cosmos has he stepped away with but we cannot use those circumstances to determine how oh, he loves them, hates them, is accepting them or rejecting them. This doesn't work. This goes back to Solomon doing the kind of hit piece on karma in the text a couple weeks ago. We have a propensity to see uh, situations. And if they give people negative or painful or, or things that we don't like, we see someone's situation, they're in something hard, and we immediately think, well, God is really angry with them or he's punishing them. Or we see with somebody with a good life or something that we secretly want, and we go, well, God must love them. That must be a reward for good behavior. And Solomon says, hey, will you just stop? We have to stop trying to connect the dots about how God feels about certain people by the things that are happening in their immediate situation. That is, that is not a helpful metric. Current circumstances don't show God's love, hate, acceptance, or rejection. I, I will give you a little bit of showing the cards eternal things do, though. This assertion will land on us as unsatisfying for some. Maybe we'll shake our heads and say, okay, I get it. Don't, don't use circumstance to, to try and play in to understand how God some, feels about someone. But, but I still don't know how if God is good and God is loving, he would let that thing happen to, to me or my friend or that person who's done good. Why is the reward uh, suffering for people who have a righteous life? I just can't wrap my mind around us. This presses us back into the missing of the complete biblical narrative as a whole. There's a lot of confusion, friends, with the American dream or the assumption of prosperity and how those two ideologies don't run in concert or in parallel with the story of God. Let me try and flesh that out and make sure that has some handles, right? Jesus was perfectly righteous, amen? We're going to train that somehow perfectly faithful, good, and just. You and I have moments where, where we do things and either we know inside or other people are like, that was wrong, that was sin. You're like, yeah, it totally was. Jesus never had any of that, right? He was perfect, above reproach. The religious people hated him just because of, of the power that he, he was gonna take from them because he was bringing a better news to them, but Jesus never had any of the, the sin or the improprieties that we do. So if we run with the suffering is an indicator that God hates you logic, then Jesus being betrayed by a close friend, you following me? Jesus being falsely accused, being convicted by some sham trial under the cover of night, Jesus being beaten ferociously, they put a crown of thorns on him, covered him and punched him and go, prophesy who did it. Jesus going to the Roman cross would be evidence that God hated the son. 
God is punishing Jesus aggressively or rejecting him or putting it to him because he had done something wrong. All of a sudden, when you reframe it that way, it doesn't work so well. We have to remember Jesus himself told us this. Friends, expect suffering. Get comfortable with the idea we really are aliens and sojourners here. This is not your home. We're passing through. Our home is somewhere else. Then we have to realize what Jesus said as well. If we follow him openly and relentlessly, if we identify ourselves with him and our actions and the way we do things and what we don't do is controlled by him and his words and our faith is the the gauge that we go through the world in, then we will end up hated by some. Why? Because darkness hates the light. Why? Because light exposes the darkness for what it is. The gospel tells us because of that hate, not only expect some suffering, but if everyone speaks well of you, if no person has any tension with the way you live or what you believe or living in light with the, the, the gospel, it's not because you're doing Christianity better. It's because you've hidden your light underneath a basket and you're calling it faithfulness. That's not what Jesus told us would happen though. I don't bring that up as a like boom moment. We just have to really wrap our minds around it. God's never lied to us. Because don't we think that? Like, <coughs> Did you lie to me? Like, I've done all of this, and this is what you bring to me? He hasn't pulled some bait and switch. He hasn't brought you into the family of God and then pulls the rug out underneath of you just to kind of laugh, look at that guy. This is not what he does. He told us the present age is going to hurt sometimes, no matter how much you try and go, but not for me, or I'll do it better, or I'll do it smarter. No, the present age is going to hurt sometimes, period. I don't know if you are like me, but if you notice this about yourself, the surface emotion or the visible emotion, the, the, the prevailing thing that, that, that is manifest or felt immediately or shown isn't always the main emotion that's driving the situation. Meaning when we feel frustrated or angry with God that he allows us to suffer, though anger and frustration are the the manifestations, they're the surface feeling that we have, I believe that fear and hurt are actually the bigger emotions at play. Fear that this pain will be forever, and I don't know how much longer I can hold it, and then hurt because then we look out and go, Dad, why didn't you save me? You're supposed to protect me. How did you do that? Solomon, what he's going to do, he's going to reframe things with an eternal view over the horizon to show that fear and, and, and pain don't have to grip you so much. If, you, if, you'll, if you'll just believe in the full word of God and the full story, those things don't have to sting as bad. They'll still hurt. They don't have to cripple you though. So verse two starts the process of realigning our view with what is true. Solomon says this, death is the great equalizer under the sun. Levels the playing fields, it changes the game. Right? We look around and we, and we have a trouble seeing why does the evil guy, the wicked guy, the, the one who does all of that, why do they get just like walk away into the sunset and thrive and do well and get away with it? Why does this get to happen? Solomon shows us, hey man, in the end, the the destination to some degree is the same for everyone in that there's a future foe that all will face. No matter if they're looking like they're crushing it or they're getting crushed, every person will hit one circumstance in their life, death. The righteous and the wicked will face it, the good and the evil, clean 
and unclean. He says those who make sacrifices and those who skip it, the sinner and the saint, the oath keeper and the blatant liar, all men and women will be chased down and caught and found by one event, which is death. It doesn't discriminate. It loves to grab a hold of all. Now notice in the pairing, Solomon is making sure that we see clearly Hey, wicked people may look like they get a free pass and they get to, to skate by and they're unscathed by their wickedness and their, uh, their sinful actions, but please understand, they're not gonna get through to the other side without dancing with death. It doesn't matter what is happening now. They have a time when it'll catch them. You may hear that and go, cool. I don't know how that helps me. Right? Good people suffer and bad people thrive, and then you're all going to die. Like, not helpful. Like, doesn't, doesn't really relieve the tension in my heart. But he explains this. It is helpful because death isn't the end. We have to wrap our mind around it. We're going to look psychotic to the world. Death is not the end, it's the doorway into eternity, though. It is the threshold to something else. Solomon next says this, the evil ones, the children of man, as he calls them, they live in madness in their hearts. It is a picture of an untethered, out of control life, no safety nets, no foundations, live recklessly, live evil while the person lives. But after that, after that, they hit the doorway of death. And then it says, and they go to the dead, the wages of their sin. There's a lot of moving parts and when you read it, it's one of those that your brain almost runs out of RAM and you got to read it and then like read a couple more words and read a couple more words, try and get what's going on here. The wages of sin are death. And since all sin, all will be found by death. All will meet the grave. But then Solomon starts splitting the message a little bit here, talking about how the evil ones who live in madness and they sin and they're, they're, they're wicked, they'll not only meet the grave, but they'll go to the dead. He's talking about those who are lost in their sin, those who have not been redeemed, have not been saved. They have not bowed the knee to Christ. They have not looked to him for the problem of their sin. They have not repented. Those who are still living for themselves, embracing madness, they're gonna go join the dead. But then this other line comes up. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. Those who have had God breathe life into their dry bones, who have replaced or had the, the, the heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, those who are now alive in Christ in New Testament language, those people, though they die, they have a hope that the wicked will never have and they can never grasp a hold of. Check out the line that Solomon drops here to drive this line home. He says this, it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Right, that's one of those. It's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. And maybe your heart hears that. You're like, hmm. Like, what does that mean? Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> one commentator said, and it's not helpful, but it made me laugh. It's biblical proof that dogs are better than cats. I'm like, amen. <laughs> not at all true. Super funny. Well, kind of true in my opinion, but super funny. Not biblically based. Dogs in biblical times, we, we need to understand definitions to get this. Dogs in biblical times and still in most third world countries, they're not considered fur babies. They're not a part of your family. You don't put coats on them and you don't take family pictures with them. They don't get groomed. They don't get pampered. 
There's no line item in the budget for them. They certainly do not have access to your bed, and they don't have a bag that you carry them around in. Dogs were dirty scavengers and vultures of the world. Dirty, nasty, hated. Their only hope is to go around and scavenge for the leftover pieces that are dropped around the world. This is what dogs are biblically. So if you would call a person a dog, if you thought that they were worthless, worthy to be hated and kicked, that's a dog. Lions, on the other hand, represent the strong and the powerful. They're a symbol of of dominance and and, and prestige, right? Kings of the jungle, the, the big dogs, not the scavenger dogs. They're the ones with the power and the dominance. What's Solomon trying to relay here? The wicked and the sinful of the world. Yes, friends, the tension in our heart is we're trying to understand they may get to be lions of the land now. Powerful, mighty, respected, heard. But friends, you need to see they're dead lions, though. Dead in their sin, dead in their hearts, dead in their minds, dead in their thinking, dead in their reasoning, dead in their soul. They rule on earth. They look like they're crushing it, but it's going to come to an end. So he says, because it's going to come to an end, it's better to be a living dog, one who's hated and rejected for a time, but has an eternity of of blessing over the horizon, a, a living hope in their future, than to be a dead lion. We get to think that they're powerful for a little while, but understand, even in the present age, all that it appears that some that are evil and wicked have, it will all be stripped away and taken. All things under the sun are God's, and he will reconcile all accounts. Solomon is speaking into eternal rewards all of a sudden, and he's pleading for your heart and mind, hey, please, will you see the long play? Pick your head up, friend. I know circumstances hurt. Look to the horizon for the long play. Yes, the wicked have a heyday for a bit, but you have to understand that moment will be short. But I, 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 it makes my mind think of like the movies where the guy is like a, an early blossomer and he's like killing it in middle school and high school and then you see him later like, ooh, right? Yeah, there's a time where things are good. That's going to be gone. The righteous will suffer for a bit, but that moment will be short. This is a reframing. A short suffering is much better than a long one. To be made alive with Christ, to be put together by God, is worthy of a short and temporary amount of suffering because it leads to a forever glory, right? Paul's words, I I, I feel, uh, how how do you say, the, the current suffering is not worthy to compare the future glory that I have in and with and through Christ. Yes, it hurts. Better day coming and it's all gonna be worth it. So is the only reward we get, and we, we've danced with this question a little bit too over this book, is the only blessing and the only reward we get death? Do we just hold on, get the tar beat out of us, and like, thank God, I died, it's gonna get better. Is, is that all that we have? He says, no. In the current reality of your life, there is still more now. The alive person The one who's dead, or the one who is God's and follows Jesus in the New Testament language, follow me. Those people actually know they're going to die. 
they have wrestled with it and they've grasped it, and to some degree, they're okay with it. But the dead person, the wicked, or the given to sin and madness person, they don't realize that they're going to die from the perspective of they're not really reconciling what that means, and they're living in light of an ignorance or a uh, a not paying attention to what's coming. If there is no God, there's no eternity, no right, no wrong, no judgment, or no reward. If this life is truly all there is, then the sinners, the dead ones inside, have to, they are forced to, by necessity, squeeze every last drop of every hope and every dream out of the here and now. I gotta get it while the getting's good because it will be done. This is all I'm gonna get. Or if they don't live that way, then they have to bury their head in the sand and ignore death. Like just pretend it's not real. Not process that there's a day that their lion days will be over. At some point, it will be stripped away. See, those dead in their sin have to live either in desperate anxiousness, in a hurry, See, friends, a a, a consistent pattern of hurry in the soul is not a marker of Christianity and the peace and hope and joy that God has put in you. They have to live with this anxious, restless, always going forward, ah, I gotta get more at all times or blind to death and the reality of it. I think Solomon is saying here, though the wicked seem to be loving life and killing it, there are consequences in their own heart playing out right now and they feel it, even if they don't know how to tell you what's there. If you are redeemed or made alive in Christ. Okay, how do we deal with this? What are we meant to do, right? The, the dead lions don't actually pay attention to or know that they're going to die. You kind of know, okay, what, but great, what, what do I do with that? If you're redeemed and made in life, reconciled in relationship to God, and death has become the doorway into the next and better chapter, then how are you supposed to live now? What posture should we have? Solomon says, then go eat bread with joy, my friends, and drink wine with a merry heart. Why? Because God has already approved of what you do. Solomon says, if you know that you're alive and made whole in God now, if you, uh, then you can simply enjoy the good gifts that God has made available in front of you in real time. Go have good food, surround yourself with good people, use the blessings of God available for joy now, even if life is hard, use them to worship them, you, or to, to worship God, use them to enjoy your days because you don't have to get more out of life than there is available in it. Have a good drink, have a merry heart. Celebrate. Belly laugh with good food. This is not a command, hey, everyone's got a drink. It's more saying, hey, you can relax and exhale and enjoy what God has given. You don't have to use alcohol to to, to get away. You can use it to celebrate and worship with your friends and laugh because God has given you a good thing. And even when life's hard over the horizon, something even better is coming. He says, wear white clothes, which is a directive to celebrate. Put on festive fun, celebratory, nice dress. As you go, eat delicious food, drink good drink, put on some sweet threads if you got them, put some oil on, bathe, smell good, have fun, laugh. Go let joy still be in your heart even when pain and tears come at times. 
The idea here is even if righteousness will lead people to suffer at times, even if followers of God are dogs of the, the, the world, to, to some people out there, it doesn't mean that we need to mope and hate all things and be blind to the reality of what's available to us now. Our pain can now, or can, uh, now can be real, but so can be a, a hopeful celebration that manifests itself in, in our hearts in some rhythms of celebration and joy. God is not a cosmic fun hater. All the cool stuff in front of us, his idea. So go enjoy it with peace, knowing that you're fully approved of and safe, even in a busted up context. You don't have to be desperate to get more in, in a hurry all the time. Let, let that one sit with our hearts. You don't have to be in a hurry. If what you have is already yours, you don't have to be in a hurry. You don't have to work 12 hours a day to get more all the time. You don't have to be in a frantic, desperate push for, for more. In, in, in the rat race of the dead lions, you can exhale and enjoy with laughter what God has placed in front of you, knowing it's just an appetizer to what's coming over that's going to be even better. This idea of hurry, one of the things I've seen out of my, my grandpa, he's getting older now, his health is not doing this Right? He's, he's going the, the other way. But one of the things I see about him now is when we have family get-togethers and we're surrounded by a meal and family and my kids are running and screaming and loud because they're related to me and just all the stuff is going on. I watch him and he sits back and he just does this. He just looks and he smiles. What's he doing? He's not in a hurry. He's just worshipfully celebrating. And he'll look at me and be like, Enjoy the family. This is great. Man, this is so good. What is, what is he doing? He's worshiping the Lord, going, I've got what I need. I don't got to chase anything else. I can be fully present, and I can smile. I may not be able to hear you all the time. I got to turn it up or turn it down, but I can just smile and, oh, hey, this is a good thing. The message is you have approval and satisfaction in God then you have a peace that the lions only dream about. Do you get that? Your job is to enjoy life by not trying to get more out of it than it's available through it. See, that's the problem. We try and get too much out of a good thing and we turn it into a busted thing and it hurts us. Why? You can do all this because God has approved of you and you are safe. Enjoy, smile, laugh. Have good food, have good fun. The vibe uh, of this is enjoy what's in front of you now. Get a wife if you want. Work a job with all you have. Work hard knowing it's not gonna save you. Uh, work hard knowing that your approval isn't tied into it. Put all that you have into your work so you can be more in the world. No, so you can sleep good at night. Work hard, enjoy what's in front of you and be totally okay with being forgotten and dying. Why? Because death is just the doorway. Doorway to what? The arms of the Father? No more suffering, no more pain. What a profound sense of contentment we could have if that were what actually what lived and resided in our heart. Live, love, laugh, eat, drink, work, play for the glory of God. Have fun. 
even if life has served you a regular supply of disappointment in some way, right? If you have hopes or dreams or something that you've deeply wanted, for many it's ones that maybe haven't had kids or, or haven't found marriage, if there's or something that you've wanted so badly, here, here's what you get to understand. The clock of eternity isn't winding down even if you think the clock of your life is, Right? You don't have to feel like the earth is slipping through your fingers and that's all you get because it's not all you get. The window of life here shatters and gives way as death comes and leads to a doorway with a wide expanse of eternity. And though I don't have it all figured out, here's what I do know. Eternity for those who are Christ will not disappoint. Your soul will say 10 out of 10, highly recommend. Right, you, you won't have a, hey, can I give a review sheet? There's a couple, you know, like, approve, or some improvements that I really wish that you would make here. You're going to be satisfied. Allie and I went to Cancun in October, and uh, we laid on the beach pretty much the whole time, but we did one excursion, uh, and we went snorkeling in the ocean, and then we went snorkeling in these uh, cenotes. They're these underground uh, caves, and to get in them, you walk down this kind of path downward, uh, and you head towards this small, unassuming, unremarkable, just kind of like hole thing. And, and you have to you have to kind of duck your head so, so you don't hit yourself in there. And it just it doesn't look like anything is going to be there. There's this low entry, and after you cross through the threshold and, and go through a ways a little further, the doorway gives like it gives birth to this massive, beautiful expanse, high ceilings, these caves that go forever. And you could have never imagined that by the size of the doorway. It's almost unimaginable that such a small hole can lead to such a grand and beautiful other area beyond it. Solomon wants to show us this is kind of what life is like for the people of God. Life seems to be a funnel ushering us towards our death. And that route that we take to get there can beat us up at times and smack us in the head. But through that small opening, those who are in Christ find eternity with him. He is the doorway right? That turns the, the doorway of death into the path of eternal riches, reward, worship, beauty. This is what comes for those who are in Christ. Everyone meets death, but everyone's experience in and after death is not going to be the same. In the last verses, Solomon caps off a closing statement about life. He says, the race isn't for the swift, nor the battle for the strong. See, this is our mindset. It's only the fast, it's only strong, it's only the powerful. Life is only good for them and it just stinks for everyone else. He says, no, that's not the way it actually is. If there is no God or eternal judgment or foundation of right and wrong, then this world really is survival of the fittest, kill or be killed. Life turns into this twisted hunger games, like kill somebody before they kill you. You better become a lion at all costs. You better get yours, learn to kill or be killed because if you don't, you're not going to have the fulfilling life that you think you need. But we know that that isn't all there is. So we are free to walk away from that life. Those dead in their sins will always be chasing the wind. And because of the peace that Christ puts in your heart, you can go, I'm, I'm done with that. Wind chasing isn't, isn't for me. And here's the thing. When someone sees you do that, they're going to think you're psychotic. 
why wouldn't you chase the wind? This isn't all I get, buddy. I can be happy. I can be content. I can enjoy the food in front of me, even if it's ramen. Put a little hot sauce on it. It'll be fine. I can enjoy what's there. Why? Because it's not all there is. I'm going to sit that nonsense out, not worrying about death or its timing or its implications. Does that mean that we're in a hurry to die? And No, no, no. It just means that you're not ruled by the fear of the implications of death. This is why we sing no longer slaves in this series. It's why we've sang death was arrested, why they're so important to our hearts, because they remind us death is sad, but it's not all. You can stare at death with a proper reverence, but without trepidation. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who came under the sun and defeated it. And by it, he emptied the power of the grave over us. Death is just the doorway, and even the current dogs can laugh and have joy and smile. Why? Because their future is incredibly bright, even if the present has some tears and some moments of pain and confusion. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says this. This is perfect for these moments that are heavy or hard or feel unfair or unjust. This is a reminder when I talked about being on your your tippy toes, peeking over the horizon for the full story of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down uh, out of heaven from God, preparing as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, hear this, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. This is the the news of the full story. I'm not sure where your heart is at this morning. If you're doing well and you're hopeful and you're excited and the Lord is kind of bringing revival in your heart and stirring you, and I think some of you are there, praise the Lord for that. That is a good gift. That's an amazing thing. You can look at maybe the, 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 the kind of down moments you've had other times. The Lord has been faithful and he's brought me out of that and I'm, I'm able to, to worship even though my, my eyes were filled with tears before he's done something good. If your heart is there, praise him. Thank you, Lord, for that. But if your heart is heavy, if tears have filled your eyes, if the weight of the, the broken world just makes it like hard to, to, to breathe at times, if that's you in any form and frustration is kind of boiled up in your heart and it's set in towards God of like, why? Why would you do this, God? If you're loving, why? why? Here's the play. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to remind your heart and your soul of Revelation 21? The, the words of Solomon that death is not the end, it's just the doorway to a much bigger expanse. Holy Spirit, I don't, I don't see that right now. I don't feel that right now. I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm tired. I, I, I don't have much worship in me, even when good food is in front of me. I don't know what's wrong. Help me. And I believe that he will. He's the comforter, the paraclete, the one that shows us Jesus, shows us how to live. And I press even further and say, if that is where your heart is at, man, things are just heavy right now. I, don't, I, I can't get myself to worship. I'm just, it's sad and, it, and it's hard. Then, then maybe on the backside, we're going to play several songs and the, the table will be up for communion. If, if, if you see, hey man, this is me, what would it, 
what would it take? Maybe the best play for you is to ask someone near you, but hey, like that, that thing, it's hitting me between the eyes. Like that, that's where I'm at. Would, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice confession to you, and I'm going to ask you, will you pray with me? Here's the thing, because we go like, yeah, interesting thought. Not going to do that. But what would it be like to, to walk in with fear and worry and walk out with the strongholds of those broken? And if you want that, may I ask you the question, how do you think that would happen if you don't ask the Lord to intervene? How beautiful would it be if the weight of sadness was, was eclipsed, by, eclipsed by the goodness of God? And Jesus even told us, hey, there's only some, some things can only be done by prayer. If that's what you need, then why have we put other times to respond and pray and deal with the Lord at the end of service so that you would be able to pray and ask the Lord to, to deal with some of the points in your heart? Lord, renew us. Give us a fresh picture of what is over the horizon. What is the living hope that we have? If the concept of a living hope is foreign to you, you've never put your faith in Jesus and there's not a foundation for this living hope and you just maybe know this, I've been going at it alone and there's been an endless cycle of a, of a pursuit to, to kind of to calm the, the heart. I would just tell you, hey, this would be a great day to acknowledge God and get off of that rat race. God has sent Jesus for the problem of our sin and the beauty is that reconciles us to God. It covers and pays for our sin, but it also gives us the peace that we are desperately seeking out under the sun. What does it look like to to come into the family of God? It's to confess before man, God, I need you and I need a savior. I'm a sinner, save me. The hope is if you've danced around that for a while, that 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 confession would walk you into the family of God and start birthing joy in your heart. Friends, we have a living hope, even in a busted up world. Holy Spirit, remind us of that. Give birth to it in our heart that we have a hope of a better day. Man, you guys can come back up. We're gonna take communion on the backside. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also. He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, the only hope that we have that turns death into the doorway of beauty and reward is what Jesus has done. This is why we come to the table and take the bread and take the cup. You're the only way in. You're the door, you're the narrow path, you're the way, you're the bread of life. So we come and we take, it's your body, Lord. It is your blood, you're the only way. Thank you. Help me, remind me once again what you have done. I pray that your heart would be encouraged as you come to the table today. read one quote to you from a book that I love. I don't have a lot of books that I've read a ton of times and listened to on audio book, but there's a book called Death by Living by N.D. Wilson, and I referenced it a little bit last week, but I just want to read an excerpt from that. I think it's helpful for our hearts. It says, lay down your life. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breath is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. 
with an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the U.S., subtracting eight hours a day for sleep, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity uh, for, uh, for myself dragging my feet, afraid to die and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. Living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. Friends, I think that's just a helpful quote to reframe the way that you look at life. If Jesus really has done what he's done, you can go spend your life and laugh and, and have joy and be completely okay when death comes and you are forgotten. Why? Because it's not the end. There's a beautiful thing over the horizon. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would do your work in our hearts. Lord, let us see what is true. Let us see that you are good, Lord. I pray that you would revive our hearts, Lord. That you would begin to stir in us the reality of what you've done. Lord, we just ask for a fresh glimpse of eternity today, Lord. Lord, we need your help. The enemy loves to try and suffocate and worry and press us into anxiousness all the time. Lord, may we see the beauty of your promise and what you've done, Lord. Father, slow down our hearts. May some of the deepest things that have given us pause and worry and anxiety, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you show us they're not as big and crazy as we think, that your promise is better than all. Lord, would you wipe away the tears of some? Would you press our hearts towards the reality of who you are and what you've done? God, we confess it's a hard thing to live in light of what we don't see. Would you help give us the ability to, though? Train our eyes and our hands and our hearts to use this world and this life properly. Enjoy them for the good you've placed in front of us, but not try and get too much out. Lord, come and work. Be glorified. Thank you that you give us a hope and a peace that we get to reside in. We love you. Be glorified. Holy Spirit, work in us today. We pray that in your name. Amen.